And if you have got a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Romans, if you would, chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. And also, if you'd like to use the Bible that's provided for you, you'll find Romans chapter 3 on page 941 of that Bible. It should be nearby there. But I want to also say uh, just a special personal welcome uh, to Mark and Leslie. Is it great to have you all with us? God bless you. We are truly honored to partner with you and we thank God for you. Amen. And uh, Vacation Bible School, so excited about that. And uh, wasn't that something, Audra and the Meteorites? I think I used to have some of those records by that group back in my junior high days. I, I thought, maybe I was mistaken. I thought that was part of the Motown sound back then or something. But uh, it's going to be a great week. And I want you to know, as you do know, that it's Vacation Bible School here. It's not a Kool-Aid and cookies kind of event. Uh, it is about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thankful for about 200 people that are, are serving in, in, that, in the Vacation Bible School. And we already have over 300 boys and girls pre-registered uh, for uh, the event. So we're looking forward to uh, having uh, hundreds of boys and girls here. So we do want to pray and remind you this afternoon of the prayer opportunity just to go around the campus and to pray for God's blessing and pray that this will be the week in God's grace that just numbers of boys and girls will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Their lives be changed now and forever. And so let's pray that it'll be a great, great week. Well, we are in a series here this summer that we call a summer reformation. A summer reformation. As pastors, we've decided to do this because uh, this is the 500th anniversary this year of incredible beginning of a work of God uh, that we know as the Great Reformation. The Reformation. A movement that swept across Europe in the 16th century bringing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ out of generations and centuries of darkness. And this great awakening changed the world then and it continues to change the world. Truly, as I said last week, we would not be worshiping here today as we are and joining with millions and millions and millions around the globe if it were not for what God did in that great, great season of awakening in the Great Reformation. Now, as we said last week, there are five great gospel truths that were not established during the 16th century, but they were brought back to light out of generations of darkness, five glorious truths on which the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ truly, truly stands. And those are called the five solas, the five solas. The word sola means alone. And the gospel of Christ goes forward on these five great truths, the five solas. What are they? Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas. And so over these 10 weeks on Sunday mornings here in these summer months, we are taking two weeks each for one of these five great truths, one of these solas. And today we are going to continue on this great truth, grace alone, grace alone. Now last week we talked about the road to spiritual darkness. How did, how did the church go from the brilliance and the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed in the New Testament to such utter spiritual darkness that was so overwhelming the truth of the gospel. And this was happening in the name of religion. It was actually in the name of Christianity that the glorious gospel of Christ was being covered by hundreds of years of darkness. The, the dark ages, but they were really the dark ages because of the religious darkness. It was religion, 
which was being stacked on top of the incredible, incredible gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. And it's not saying too much, friends, not saying too much, that it was the Reformation that brought about a rediscovery of the gospel of grace. It was always there, as we said last week, God never leaves himself without a witness. But it was in those dark ages that God in his grace visited his people with an awakening that literally changed the world forever and brought to light once again this gospel of grace. Grace alone. Grace alone. It's all of grace. Now, I want you to know that as we talk about grace alone this morning, I want you to know that grace is a devastating doctrine. It really is a devastating doctrine. Now, why would I say that? I say that because before grace amazes us, what God does in his grace is he abases us. He, he, he shows us that salvation is only by grace. And friends, listen to this. Never forget that grace murders merit. <laughs> there is no human merit when it comes to grace. No merit whatsoever. As a matter of fact, we saw last week in our text in Romans chapter 11, verse 6. Here's what Paul said. He said, salvation is by grace. But it, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. When you begin to mix works, that is human effort, with God's grace, it's no longer grace. Grace is contaminated, not just contaminated, it becomes altogether something else. It is not free, sovereign grace. It is of grace, not of human merit at all. It's all of grace and grace alone. And God has to reveal that to us. We are so in our flesh, in our, in our sinful self, we are so bent toward our own merit system that God has to begin his work of grace in our hearts by showing us that we do not measure up and that our salvation is only by his grace. Now he does that, and I want you to see a text this morning I want us to read. He does it in a glorious way in this word that he gave to the Apostle Paul. And our text is found in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And I know that you've settled in and you've gotten very comfortable. You look very comfortable this morning. I'm glad you are. But I'm going to ask if you're able, if you're able to please stand as we read the word of God together. Romans chapter 3, beginning verse 19. Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Now, I want you to notice briefly with me this morning as we think about grace alone, the gospel of grace, there are three gracious revelations. There are three gracious revelations of grace alone that the Lord reveals to those he brings to faith, and they are found here in, in this text this morning. Incredible passage of scripture on grace alone. Now the first gracious revelation is the revelation of the requirement of God. What is God's requirement? Verse 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now notice, he says, it is the law that shows God's righteousness, but the law cannot bring salvation. Because no one is able to keep God's law. Therefore, the law itself, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is not deficient. The law is the standard of God. It is perfect and good. The deficiency is with us who in our sin, we cannot keep God's standard. Now, what does God reveal about his law in this passage? Notice a couple of things. He shows us that the law reveals God's perfect standard. His perfect standard. Friends, listen. God is a judge. God is not a teacher. He does not grade on a curve. God is a judge. And he passes judgment on perfect justice. He does not grade on a curve. The law reveals God's perfect standard. He doesn't lower the bar for anybody. The standard is righteousness. And then the law also shows us that it is powerless to save us. The, the law cannot save us. It's powerless to do so. It, it's like this. The law is a perfect mirror. God's commandments reveal his nature, reveal his glory, reveal his standard, and we see ourselves in the mirror, and the mirror shows us our sin and shows us the dirtiness of our lives, but this mirror of the law doesn't give us a bar of soap. It doesn't offer a way that we can cleanse ourselves. It simply shows the standard. The standard is perfect obedience, perfect righteousness. The third thing that the law reveals, and again, this is God's grace doing this. God uses the law graciously to reveal his standard, the law's powerlessness to save us because we are powerless to be saved by keeping the law. We, we can't do it. Why can we not be saved by the law? Verse 23, look at it. For all have sinned. Sin here means to transgress. All have sinned, and by our sin we have fallen short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? It's the standard of God, the righteousness of God. It is what he demands. And we have fallen short. We all come short of God's standard. Now I thought I might try to illustrate this this morning by using a standard, a tape measure. And I need, I need a little help here. Terry, uh, okay, you want to help me? Great. You can help me. Great. 
come right ahead. All right, Terry, he, he, as old as he is, it takes him a while to get up. So you got up here quicker anyway. So just take that and just start walking that way back there. Not too fast, just take it. Okay, walk, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. Okay, keep walking some more. Okay, there's not a cliff behind you. Keep walking. Okay, keep walking. All right, all right. Stop right there. And just stop right there. Let me come back. Just a little bit more. One more step. Okay. You see this? Hold it up just a little bit. You see that? You know what that is? That is the world record in the running broad jump. 29 feet, 3.4 inches. That was the record set in 1991 by one of our Olympians in Japan, Tokyo. He jumped 29 feet, 4.3 inches. <laughs> okay. Now, if you want to win the gold medal... If you want to stand on the dais and hear the national anthem, you got to jump farther than this because this is the standard. Now, all of us could jump and some of us could jump. It's okay, stay there. Some of us could jump a little farther than others. Some here, you could come make a running jump. You might go three or four feet. <laughs> Don't, don't look around, don't look around, don't do that. Some might jump 10, 12, you know, you know some of us highly trained athletes, some of us, <laughs> what? We, we might do 18 feet, yeah. Nobody here is doing 29 feet, 3.4 inches, but this is the world record. Now how, if this is the world record for the broad jump, this is the standard, this is what you must clear. Friends, how far is the gulf between us as sinners and a holy God? Some of us may not miss the mark as far as others, but listen, when it comes to God's standard, the law none of us are even coming close because God's standard is perfection. Thank you, friend. Thank you so much. You can, yeah, you can probably down there. Okay, thank you. Appreciate you jumping up like that, okay? And it was even made sweeter that you were sitting by Terry when you did that. I want you to know that. But folks, listen. The reality is, here's what do we learn? I hope this little illustration will stick, stick with you. What do we learn? We don't measure up. We don't measure up. So what's the gospel? What's the good news? The bad news, we don't measure up. The good news, we don't have to. Because someone has measured up. Someone has crossed the chasm between sinful people and a holy God. And that someone who could clear that chasm was the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. That is the good news. And that's what God in his grace reveals. He reveals, first of all, we don't measure up. No one will seek the Lord until they understand that they need the Lord. That they don't measure up. And knowing that they don't measure up, then we have to put away the standard of merit and what are we looking for? Grace. Merciful grace. And that is exactly what the Lord reveals. He reveals the second grace revelation. He reveals the revelation of a righteousness provided from God, that a righteousness has been provided by God himself. The one who has the standard has provided a way that the standard can be met in his own righteousness. Now, 
This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Why do we say that? Because on All Saints' Eve, October 31st, 1517, there was a Roman Catholic monk in Wittenberg, Germany, who was so outraged at the teaching of indulgences, the practice of indulgences, that is that people could give money for the building of the cathedral of St. Peter's in Rome, and if they would give money, they could free themselves from years of purgatory after their death. They could shorten their stay in purgatory or they could get some of their loved ones out of purgatory who were already there. This is what was being taught in cities. And fortunes were being raised by people going around selling indulgences. And Martin Luther was so enraged by this that he wrote down 95 reasons why this cannot be. And he took the document, 95 Theses, and he nailed it to the door of the cathedral in Wittenberg, Germany. That happened in 1517, and it is seen by most people as really the inaugural event of what we call the Reformation. But now listen carefully. When that monk, Roman Catholic monk Martin Luther, nailed that document to the door, he had no real assurance of his own salvation. He knew what was wrong. He knew what was heresy and terrible. But he himself did not have the assurance of his own salvation. Martin Luther, by his own testimony, says that for him, the miracle did not happen in 1517, but it happened in 1519. It happened while he was pouring his heart in prayer over a passage of scripture in Romans. He was, he was teaching Romans, but he had no peace with God. And here's what he was reading. Turn back a page. Romans chapter 1. Here's where the miracle happened in his life. He was meditating on Romans 1 verses 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. And then here is the verse that came alive to him. For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther knew that God was a righteous God. And he knew that he was not. Even though he had abused his body with long hours of neglect. As he had gone without clothing, properly clothing himself in prayer, in fasting, in watching, in even beating his body to somehow appease this righteous God. And he says in his heart he actually hated this God because in no way could he find this God would love him. He could not do enough to know this God loved him. But then God in his grace opened his eyes. He saw that the righteousness was not his righteousness that had to match the righteousness of God, but the righteousness of God here is the righteousness from God. It's the righteousness that God provides on the basis of faith, and people who have faith will live. The just shall live by faith out of a righteousness that God himself provides. And he says, when that dawned on him, quote, here I felt I was altogether born again and I had entered paradise itself through the open gates. 
Righteousness provided by God himself on the basis of his grace. That's Paul. Go back to chapter three. That's what Paul is exclaiming. That's his exclamation of this grace of God that has brought his righteousness. And he begins in chapter three, verse 21. Notice he says, but now, but now, this is divine intervention. What has he just been talking about? People who try to become righteous by the law. Verses 19 and 20. They can't do it. But now... The righteousness of God, not our righteousness to equal God, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, not by keeping the law. Although the law and the prophets have borne witness, the Lord and through the law and the prophets talked about this gracious God. The righteousness of God, this righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because all have sinned and are excluded by their sin. God in his grace has included all who come by faith. Verse 24, and they are justified by his grace as a what? It's the next word, gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What incredible, amazing, astounding grace. Right? Absolutely no human merit there whatsoever. All of God. All of his kindness and goodness. All of grace. That's the reason... <laughs> There was a great pastor of a generation ago. His name was Donald Barnhouse, a Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia. His books are still available. You want great books, find books by Barnhouse. But over his Bible, in the passage we just read a few minutes ago, he took a red pen and drew a big heart. A big heart because he said, this is the heart of the revelation of God. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of God for sinners. And this is the message. The message of salvation. A righteousness from God. Given freely by grace. In Jesus Christ. Now <clears throat> there are some big words here. <clears throat> Pardon me. Big words. And I want us just to soak in a few big words here for a moment. They're not big in that they're long, but they're big in what they mean. Notice these words of grace. Verse 21, he says, righteousness. The righteousness of God. He's talking about a, a right standing. God is righteous. Now how do we have a right standing with God? That's the problem. God is righteous. We're not. What's the answer? The answer begins to be shared with us by that little word faith. Look at verse number 22. The righteousness of God, God's righteousness comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith. What's the word faith mean? It means reliance, reliance, trust, dependence. It, faith doesn't mean just to believe about Jesus. It, it means a, a reliance and a dependence on Jesus. John Patton was an incredible missionary in the 1800s. He went to evangelize the cannibals of the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. Incredible story in his autobiography. If you'd like to get the autobiography of John Patton, you will not be able to put it down. Incredible what God did by his grace through that man. But he wanted to give those islanders the understanding of faith. Faith in Jesus. But here was the problem. They didn't have a word for faith in their language. They had no real word for faith. 
And how could he share the gospel of salvation through faith without a, a word for faith? And he was laboring over this. And one day he and some of his men with a guide were trudging through the jungle on a trail. And the guide said, let's pause and rest for a while in this heat. And so they took their packs off. They sat down. And then they stretched out. And while they were there in the shade, the guide said this. He said, listen, how good it is to stretch ourselves out on the ground. How good it is to stretch ourselves out on the ground. And John Patton said, that's it. What's that word? What is that word? What? To stretch yourself out on. What, what's that word? <laughs> and the guide told him, he said, that's the word I'm going to use for faith. Faith is to stretch yourself out on Jesus. It is to lean on Jesus, to rely on Jesus. That's the word that he used. And friend, that's what faith is. It is to stretch yourself out on Jesus. To have no other hope but to put your whole soul and your eternal destiny on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's faith. And now notice, it's not just for some who will believe. Look at verse 22, that little word all. It's for all who will believe. It's for all. This incredible salvation, this righteousness with God, to be right with God and received by God is, is not just for some who are better than others because we're all sinners. None of us measure up. But this righteousness is for all who will have faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, the amount of your sin is not the problem. The fact that you are farther from God than other people is not the problem. The issue is not how far someone is from God. The issue is will that person forsake all trust in himself or herself and rely on Jesus. And regardless of how great the sin, anyone who will do that will be right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just right, but look at the next word, justified. Verse 24, and those who believe are justified. What's justified mean? It means declared not guilty. It's a legal term. It's a term where a judgment is passed, where someone is declared no, not guilty, free from the guilt it's a, a word of judgment passed by a judge. Maybe you've seen some court cases where someone, they, they have cameras sometimes, you can see someone who was told to rise and to hear the verdict of the jury. Have you ever seen this? Sometimes in a capital case, that means they're, they're, the rest of their life is at stake. Maybe life or death. And have you ever been there a few times perhaps when the person stands and either the judge or the foreman or the foreperson of the jury says, we find the, the defendant not guilty. And it, their face, the tension, the fear, the dread leaves because they've been declared not guilty. Never can they be brought to trial again for this. Never can their life be in jeopardy for this again because they've been declared not guilty. That's what this word justified means. It means that a person who stretches himself out, stretches herself out on Jesus, is declared by God to be not guilty. Guilty, not guilty. And that is what? A complete free gift. You see the word gift? Look at verse 24. It is a free 
gift. Free for us. Cost us nothing. But not free for God. Not free for Jesus. Because this freedom was purchased at a price we cannot even begin to imagine. That's what the word redemption means. Do you see that word in verse 24? Redemption. We are justified by his grace, grace alone. It is a gift paid for through the redemption. That's a purchase. That's a, that means to purchase through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption has to do with a payment that is made. This is a word of the marketplace. The word justified is a word of the courtroom. This is a word of the marketplace where something is purchased. It's purchased. It is a payment made. And here he's talking about a payment for sin. Sin is a debt to God. We have all sinned, verse 23, and come short of God's standard. We are all terrible debtors before a holy God. But Christ, in his perfect righteousness, paid the price of our debt. This is redemption. He paid the price for our sin. What was the price? Romans chapter 6 verse 23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Spiritual death. Separation from God forever. That's the wages. That's the price of sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, who paid our debt. And that debt that he paid, he paid for us. Now listen carefully. He paid the debt for us, but he paid it to God. He offered himself as a substitute for sinners, but he offered himself as a sacrifice to God the judge. And that word is in verse 25. It's the word propitiation. Whom God, God whom here is Jesus. God put Jesus forward. He sent forth his son as a propitiation. As a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. Jesus was sent forth as a propitiation. What is propitiation? It's an amazing word. It means an atoning sacrifice. A sacrifice that makes atonement for sin. And it specifically means an atonement to God on behalf of sinners. Propitiation. Now this is an amazing word. We don't hear it a lot, but we need to understand it a lot. This word, propitiation, is used 20 times in the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. In Jesus' day, there was a translation of the entire Old Testament into Greek. It had existed for about 250 years. It was called the Septuagint because 70 religious scholars translated the Jewish scriptures into the common language of the world, which was Greek. And it was known and read everywhere when Jesus came and when the apostles went out with the message. But now listen carefully. 20 times in that Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word propitiation is used to describe an object. It's used as a description of the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Now what is the mercy seat? And why is it called by this word? 
You remember, God entered into a covenant with this, the people of Israel. He brought them to Mount Sinai. He called God, he called Moses up in his presence. He gave Moses the commandments of the covenant. Ten of those commandments of the covenant were etched into two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, we call them. They were the words of the covenant. Those two tablets were put inside of the Ark of the Covenant, a box that was covered with gold. And according to God's directions, the lid of that box was made of solid gold, one piece, and fashioned out of that gold lid were two angels who faced each other with their wings outspread, looking down. So here's the box. The law is in the box. The angels looking downward spread over the box. And God said to his people Israel, I will dwell with you in the midst of those two angels. My presence will be among you. Between those angels hovering over the covenant has been made. That ark was put behind a curtain. Only one time a year could someone go behind that curtain and only one person, the high priest. He went behind that curtain on one day. It was called Yom Kippur the day of covering or the day of atonement. He went behind that with a container of blood of a goat. He would dip a branch of hyssop into that basin of blood and he would sprinkle that lid of the ark, the mercy seat. So you see, here's God above the seat. Beneath the seat is the covenant, the Ten Commandments. His people have violated his covenants. This year they have violated his covenants and blood is sprinkled between a holy God and broken laws. And God said when that blood is sprinkled, he would pass over the sins of his people who believed in him for that year. This was done year after year after year for nearly 1,500 years until there was a day on a cross outside of Jerusalem. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was lifted up between heaven and earth. Nailed to the cross as a substitute for sinners like you and me. Lifted up to God in all of his perfect righteousness as a sacrifice to God for all of our broken sins, all the broken laws, all our unrighteousness. And Jesus was lifted up and God put a curtain of darkness over the face of that. And after those hours had passed where God was pouring out his wrath on sin. And Jesus, our substitute, was receiving it. That was his, with his last breath, Jesus cried out, it is finished. And when he cried out with that loud voice, the Bible says there was an earthquake and the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Meaning this sacrifice never has to be made again. The way is open for sinners to come to God through the atoning work, the propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God set forth his son as the atoning sacrifice and Jesus took upon himself the wrath due for us and God was satisfied with the work of Jesus. He accepted what his son had done because the third day he proved it by what? Raising him from the dead. And now there's no longer any need for more sacrifices. Now there are no more sacrifices. There can be no more sacrifice. The mass cannot be a continual sacrifice because by one sacrifice, Jesus has perfected forever those who are saved by faith in him. The Bible says... As we look to Jesus, as we rely on what Jesus has done, that once and for all, we are accepted by God. <laughs> the sacrifice has been made. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Who can comprehend a God like this? It's all of grace. Now do you see what happens when someone says, well, I'm going to go to church and make myself right with God. I'm going to give some money and make myself right with God. I'm going to go through some religious observance to get right with God. I'm going to do my best and when I get to heaven, if my best is more than my worst, I'm going to be right with God. Do you see what that is? That is to say that what Jesus did on the cross meant nothing. That we can do better than that. When we offer up our righteousness, when we offer up our good works, they are worse than filthy rags because to offer up our good works for God to save us is to reject the righteous sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. It's grace alone and it is free to all. Thank God who will believe. 1756. There was a young man in his mid-twenties. Twice he had been in the asylum. Twice he had tried to take his life with such depression. He could not believe that he could be received by God and his mind was almost warped with the fact that he could not earn and make himself right with God. And he threw himself down in a chair as he was pacing the floor. He just threw himself down the chair. And as he did that, his eyes happened to see an open Bible. And he went and picked it up. And he read the passage I read to you and you read along with me this morning. And in a moment, he saw it, that what he was trying to earn, God was freely giving in Jesus Christ. And he said, in that moment, the glory of the gospel, the truth illuminated his heart. And he knew that he was accepted through Christ. And he wrote a poem about that. Here's what he wrote. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty sins. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day and there may I, even as vile as he, wash all my sins away. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds provide. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I will sing thy power. To say, William Cooper, but anyone's name can be written to those words 
who understands it is grace alone through Jesus Christ and faith stretching himself, herself upon him, that person is accepted. Now, dear friend, what is your hope of heaven? If you were to die this moment, what's your hope of acceptance by God? What could you possibly, what would you possibly tell God if you were standing before him? It's heaven or hell, all eternity. What would you tell him? Friend, I pray, I pray that what you would say is I have no hope. I have nothing to offer but the wounds of the one who's at your right hand who died in my behalf, who died for sinners, and I have trusted, I have relied on him and him alone as my savior. And you said that all who would rely on him would be saved. My friend, that is the testimony of faith in Jesus. Now, friend, today, this day, church attender, good moral person, nice to your neighbors, decent and honorable, that has its place, but it has no merit with God. The only hope for you or for me is to cling to Jesus, trust in him, and all who rely on him are granted acceptance, righteousness, and declared not guilty. Lord, I feel how empty and how little my words have communicated what is beyond human understanding, but I praise you that your gospel goes forward in power by your Holy Spirit. I pray this morning, I plead with you that you would honor again the sacrifice of your son by drawing people to look to him and be saved. I pray this for the glory of Christ. And those agreeing said, 